Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history. Um, and also making things and food that may or may not be historical. <laughs> so what have you been up to? Um, so I have got hold of some five-inch bamboo DPNs. Oh, yes. So I am making gloves for the first time. That sounds fiddly. It is. Like, it was definitely worse with the 10-inch um, DPNs. That's double-pointed needles for people that don't know. Because mm-hmm. just, they're just clanking around and swinging about when you've only got two or three stitches on each needle. <laughs> it does make you look very cool, though, because it it's impossible to, like work out what you're doing if one is not a knitter I mean I think it still looks cool doing it with the shorter needles but it's yeah. also you know possible oh right yes yeah I've attempted gloves before with the 10 inch ones and just given up when I got to the fingers there's it it too much needle to manage <laughs> Yeah, doing small things on double point needles is tricky. But now I've got fancy bamboo ones. How many fingers have you got? Um, well, I made one glove, but I think there's a a glitch with the pattern. Okay. Because um, the thumb ended up like mostly attached to the hand and way too short. Ah. But I've learned that if I replace one tiny bit of the pattern, because it says next three rounds, if I just change that to next round, suddenly mm. it's fine. Oh, nice. So I've, I've fixed the pattern and also yeah. added the basket weave cuff because I cannot be stopped. <laughs> that sounds really cool. And also because it's, it's a massive ball of iron wool so I can make a matching basket weave hat and scarf if I want to. Ah, uh, yeah! Whereas the original cuff was just garter stitch and that's kind of boring. I don't know, I like a garter stitch. Um, I've got Not an appreciation for it. Scarf, but I, I do understand that there are many, shall we say, more exciting ones out there. Yeah. So, <laughs> have, have you been making anything? Um, Not a lot. Honestly, I've been pretty tired the last couple of weeks. Um, I've uh, I, I've been on a placement um, in a hospital, so uh, I have been getting up very early. And by the time I get back, it's kind of dark. And um, I've been just do- doing a lot of new things and learning a lot of new things, and being in a different town, new environment. Um, so I haven't really had the energy to do anything. Um but I, I brought I brought um craft stuff with me. Um and I've done a little bit of um I've done a little bit of my quilt. So it's going fun. I've collected a couple of new um fabrics for it. Ooh. And and done a little bit. So it's it's nice to I try and always do a little bit. Uh, in the evening, because you know it—it's nice to work on a personal thing. Like it reminds you that you are also also have a personality outside of what you're doing all day. 
Um, but one thing all day is cool because I'm I'm studying hand therapy at the moment, so I'm learning a lot about the hand and, and a lot about um, good joint positioning, which uh, I feel is relevant craft. So yeah, you've got access to all, all the premium stretches now. <laughs> Uh, pretty much. Um, I mean, there there is also a lot of information out there for free. If you just go on YouTube and you look at uh, search for ergonomic knitting or crochet or whatever, um, you will find a lot of helpful stuff. So yeah, would recommend doing that. Um, it's it's always good to warm up your hands um, before you start doing anything delicate and stuff. Uh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so yeah, I believe it is your turn today. It is. Um, and I am actually going to be talking about quilts. I think it is about time. <laughs> that it we is did. That time of year. It is that time of year. It is snuggly, and also you know the thing where you get super into to one thing, and then you do a podcast episode on it. <laughs> and I'm like sure everyone the soap episode. Yeah, I'm sure everyone can relate to that, you know. Um <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I started a quilt and then I was like, ah, quilts. Um but I do actually have a little little bit of history in looking into quilts. Um and I have I have to say there is a lot. Like you you can kind of consider this quilts part one, I guess, because it's a big topic. Um and there's a lot of aspects to talk about. So in, in this episode, I'm just going to talk a little, about, a little bit about quilting in general and then a few kinds of quilting techniques uh, from different places in the world. And then a couple of notable quilts. Notable um, quilts? Oh yeah, there will be notable quilts. I didn't uh, know there was such a thing. <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, uh, one of the first ones actually um and i'll send you a picture um so pictures from that we talk about on the podcast can be found at our twitter our bread and thread and i promise they will be <laughs> yeah can normally um, be found on our twitter yeah well i'll do it i'll queue it up straight away today um so this is a picture that i've just sent you Liz uh, and anyone else if you can't wait for the Twitter and you want to look it up it is called the Tristan quilt this is a quilt that is dated to the later half of the 14th century oh so it is it is medieval it is a medieval quilt from Sicily that's so cool yeah it's currently in the Victoria and Albert Museum it's called the Tristan quilt um because it shows a few scenes from medieval legends, and one of them is the legend of Tristan and Isolde. Mm -hmm. And it's made using a technique called trapunto, which is an Italian technique where you stuff certain areas of the quilt from the back. So it's kind of in relief. There are certain parts of it that are in relief. Um, which is just really cool um, because I did not realise that quilting was such an old technique, really. Yeah. 
Um, so I'll come back to this quilt in a little bit, but just for a little background on quilting. So patchwork and quilting are sometimes words that are used interchangeably. They're not the same thing. Uh, patchwork is when you are sewing the little bits of fabric together, just, you know, patching things together to make a bigger fabric. And quilting is when you have two or more layers of fabric, um, normally a top layer and a bottom layer, and something in between, whether it's a layer of padding or people would use old clothes, old fabrics, things like that. And you stitch through all of those layers to bind all of the layers together. That's quilting. I guess that makes sense because I've never really thought about it. But when you say the word quilt, what immediately springs to mind is the big patchwork American ones. Exactly. Um, and they are often used together. So you can have a, a patchwork quilt that is really, really common. Um, and that's, yeah, that's like the, the probably the most popular like kind, like the kinds that would come to mind, like you say. Um, like famously... Um, a big part of American cultural history um, and also British as well um, in in kind of a smaller way um, and and also in plenty of other cultures as well um, but a quilt and a quilted object are different things the quilting the technique um, has come to be associated with quilts so a, a quilt is the thing that you put over your bed mm -hmm. uh, and quilting is also a technique in itself. Um, so, for example, there were the um, quilted jackets that you would wear underneath your armour um, in, uh, in various parts of history as well. Um, so whatever you're quilting doesn't have to be a quilt. And th and then it's still used a lot today in clothing, like those quilted winter jackets that you can get. Oh, those are cosy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so quilting as a technique um, may be older than the, the medieval period. Um, but as with a lot of things, this is where we start getting surviving examples. So uh, quilting seems to have emerged um, around the medieval period, or at least that's when we, we start finding examples. Um, and it's pretty much all over the world. Um, so, you, so some of these techniques may be older, um, but we start getting quilt, capital Q, quilts, the object, mm -hmm. from around the medieval period. Um, so like the Tristan quilt from medieval Sicily um, in the technique Traponto. And that is one of the oldest ones that are around. Um, but there's also a few different quilting techniques from around the world. And I'm going to talk about just a couple of them because there are many more. Um, but like I said, to cover it in one episode would get a little bit lengthy. Um, so I did get um, 
some information from a book published by the V&A called uh, Patchwork and Quilting, which covers many different patchwork and quilting techniques, uh, which is very interesting. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to talk about a couple of them. Um, one of them is becoming a bit more well-known in the West at the moment, I believe, but is a very old technique in the Indian subcontinent, um, particularly associated with the Bengali region. Um, and it's spelled K-A-N-T-H-A. Mostly I've seen it pronounced Kantha in like English sources, but I, I believe it's actually pronounced Kanta. Um, so this is a method of quilting um, that can involve, it can involve patching, um, but they are embroidered quilts. Oh. And they are absolutely beautiful. Um, so it's a method of quilting that incorporates embroidery and coloured threads often um, to make these incredible designs. So I'm going to send you a picture of one now. Oh, that's very pretty. Yeah. They, these were often made and still are made. Um, to use up old clothes and things, um, just like most quilts everywhere are. Um, so you can put in the middle layers, you can put old fabrics, old clothes, and then um, it would be stitched through in pattern. And they can be uh, geometric patterns, um, like for example, in the Muslim regions, there would often be geometric patterns. Um, but they can also be very elaborate, like they could also be created um, like for a particular purpose rather than just being using up old stuff. Um, so, for example, the one I'm going to send you now. I just felt that like this episode in particular needed a bit of visual aid. <laughs> so, for oh, reference... Wow. Yeah, so for reference, the first picture I sent is a kind of geometric, almost flower pattern. And then the second one is this colourful scene. Um, yeah, with, with people on it and animals and plants and, and beautiful borders around the edge. Um, is yeah. a specific scene that's being shown? Uh, yeah, I think so. But I'm not sure... Um, I'm not sure if it's a scene from like mythology, like the Tristan quilt, or if it's just like, you know, a, a typical scene. Mm -hmm. But it's just amazingly intricate. So this craft, um, interestingly for a culture where textile work, professional textile work is often a man's profession, um, these are very much a domestic thing and the making of them is sort of more associated with women. Uh, so I read like... For the home rather than for sale. Yeah. 
yeah, so that that you see with quilts a lot, I think, because they're like a domestic item for the home. In the same way that in medieval Europe, in uh, in Europe, knitting professionally would be a man's job, but done in the home, it's very much a woman's job. Mm-hmm. Um, although I guess it depends where you are in Europe, because that anyway, that's a whole other thing. Let's not get into knitting. Um, <laughs> it's a different episode. Yeah, it's a different episode. Um, yeah. So, um, the word "kanta" apparently means something like uh, rags, patched cloth. So, referring to the technique uh, used to make it, but also the object, like the word "quilt." Um, and I've seen sort of records of people talking about they remember these quilts all being hung to uh to air around the household and all this this sort of colorful hangings and stuff and they remember their grandmothers making one or um yeah so they they are still produced um they are uh the the hand making technique um as with so many crafts around the world i think is less less done in the modern day um and there are a lot of more commercially produced ones available um and they're starting to become a bit of a a a trendy thing in the west as well i think um sort of very watered down versions that makes sense yeah yeah definitely europe likes to do (laughs) as always um, but from what I can gather, it is the craft is still alive as well uh, in the region, and and people are sort of getting interested in making them again, um, which is awesome. Uh, so there's also, uh, and if anyone has like anything more to add to that, that was just like a very very quick overview. Uh, then please do tweet us or write in. Um, now I'm going to hop over to Japan. Uh, where we have the technique of sashiko, which is very well known now, I think. And that is also a quilting technique. Although it doesn't have to be done through various layers of fabric. It can be done just through one. Um, Because it as well as being a quilting technique, it's used as a way to strengthen fabric. So if you're doing it on one layer of fabric, um, it is is not just decorative, it also is a way to strengthen the fabric. Um, that's wild because that's also why quilted toilet paper is a thing. Oh, I, I did not even know that. That is awesome. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not like comparing, comparing <laughs> it to paper. Just to make that clear, I just think it's interesting. Um, it yeah, that structure would make sense. Absolutely. Um, which is funny, isn't it? Because you would think that by putting holes in it, it wouldn't be as strong. But well, yeah, like if you embroidering something at all you're just stabbing it over and over Mm -hmm. okay so there we have a um 
embroidered sashiko object. And uh, yeah, so it's often said that it's a mending technique, um, which it absolutely can be, um, but it's also a way of strengthening the fabric. And um, sashiko embroidery is done in geometric designs, which again are absolutely beautiful. And it's done with the running stitch. So a very basic kind of stitch, um, but yeah, actually... It's the first stitch you learn really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's incredible because it's, it's just that basic stitch, but there is so much artistry to it and so much craftsmanship um, uh, that turns it into um, this, this amazing uh, technique. Um, sashiko is often mentioned with uh, the word borrow, which is a mending technique, um, and that's also quilting, so stitching through lots of different layers of fabric. And in the DNA book, there is a picture of this absolutely gorgeous um, working jacket from around the 19th century in Japan. And it's just. I'm going to see if I can find, I found the picture. Okay. This is absolutely going to be on the Twitter, um, but I will describe it for the listeners. So it's just somebody's old work jacket. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> it was originally dyed with indigo, uh, which was a dye that was often used by... Sorry? I was just thinking that it looked like denim. Yeah, yeah. So indigo was often used by working people um, in Japan because it was a dye that, that was easy to get there. And sashiko is traditionally done in on indigo-coloured fabric in white thread. So this is just someone's old working jacket um, that has been patched with new layers of fabric and had them quilted in. And over the years, it just builds up and builds up until you have this kind of all these, these layers of fabric patched together. Um, but because they're all at different levels of fading and they're at different, it's almost like it creates this patina um, mm. that is absolutely beautiful. And so this object that is just someone's work jacket, we're looking at it today and being like, that is a work of art. <laughs> so the way I've heard it described um, is that sashiko is a strengthening embroidery technique um, and something has to kind of, something becomes borrow. So borrow can be many layers of, of sashiko embroidery on fabric. So it's like many, many layers of mending. Um, but you can't really like start from start from scratch and make something new because it it kind of has to build up until it becomes borrow, which I like. Like it's not necessarily something that is made; it's something that becomes. There's, yeah, there's. It's almost like a spiritual thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, um, 
just thinking about how you get in Japanese mythology things like you know if a cat lives to a hundred years and then gains magical powers and things like that, and if objects last long enough, they gain spirits. Oh wow! And it it just reminds me of that whole concept of it just becoming something else while still staying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I'm explaining um, myself badly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I I like. I like that it becomes more beautiful as it ages and gets worn and mended. Um, mm. Yeah, apparently um, often the more mended bits would be on the inside because, of course, if you're an actual like peasant in the countryside, you, you want to be trying to make it look not that mended. Yeah. Um, so the more patched bits would, or the bits that were, you know, if they had a bit more fabric to work with they would put it on the outside and then all the little little patchy bits would be on the inside um but again you know now uh 100 150 years or so later we're looking at it going oh my gosh that's beautiful that's amazing um so yeah <laughs> i guess that's a a changing viewpoint of looking at things um you can now sashiko is very popular um, now uh, as embroidery technique, uh, both in Japan and outside of Japan. Um, it's another thing that that sort of became a bit of a quote unquote trend. Although again, like a lot of the things that are being labelled sashiko are not necessarily that. Um, but you can get. Um, you can get sashiko thread that is specifically designed for that um and it doesn't have to it's traditionally done on indigo fabric um but it doesn't have to be you can use colored threads so it's kind of evolving a little bit as an art form um at the moment and i'll try and find some good uh, sort of practitioners of japanese practitioners of sashiko to link to um in the podcast so that people can get a bit of an idea um, but yeah, you can get sashiko needles, which are sort of longer because you make the stitches by sort of rocking in and out of the fabric instead of making the individual stitches. Um, and you can get the, the special thread for it. So those materials are available um, to try it out. That's cool. So is it is it more like a curved needle then? Or? No, no, they're straight needles. Okay. So when you said about sort of rocking in and out, I was imagining like uh, medical stitches. Mmm. <laughs> Ouch. No, it's sort of um, you're sort of controlling the needle with one finger, kind of like um, how you do traditional hand quilting as well. You're sort of controlling the needle uh, with one finger. And it's going in and out of the fabric and you make quite a few stitches before you pull it through um which is a lot faster than doing it stitch by stitch so i'm going to talk a little bit about patchwork now Mm -hmm. um more in a european sense so there are a few there, there are different kinds of quilt um and as we go into the 18th and 19th centuries there are lots of different kinds that are popping up. Um, one of the very traditional techniques in Europe 
um, and then also because of colonialism later in America and North America and uh, uh, Australia is paper piecing, which is where you, that's what I'm using to make mine at the moment. Um, so that's a technique originating in Britain as far as I know. Um, and that's where you have shapes cut out in thick paper or card. Um, so usually geometric shapes and you then cut out your scrap of fabric and you wrap it around the paper and stitch it down. So you sort of cover the paper and you tack it in place and then you get a couple of your pieces and you whip stitch them together. So you're using the paper almost like as a a mold for your pieces. Okay, that's that's interesting. Yeah. So it's really I have to say it's really relaxing as a technique. <laughs> and it allows you to to sort of get the same shape every time. And then after afterwards um you remove the paper. So you're left with just this beautiful geometric um patchwork. And you don't have to quilt patchwork. You can make um, just a patchwork coverlet or something. Uh, so, for example, the one that I'm sending you now, which actually is not a quilt, so I guess that's a little bit naughty. Um, but this was made by a lady called Lucy Boston, who was an English novelist, um, but also quite well known now for her quilts in the 20th century. And that was all made using paper piecing. So they've got the, she's got this hexagonal shape and she's covering all the pieces and sewing them together. So that's a paper piece quilt. Um, and that was quite popular in the 19th century as a technique um, because it's quite simple to do. So whether you're like, it doesn't matter what, what class you are, you're going to be able to do this with just kind of scraps. Like a lot of people would have their family scrap box of like offcuts from dressmaking, old clothes, you know, things that had a rip in them. They just go in the scrap box and eventually you accumulate enough that you can sort of put them all together into a quilt top. And so this technique became quite popular. Um, it yeah, it doesn't take up a lot of effort. You can just do it at home in the evenings. Fairly portable as well, because mm -hmm. um, you have these small bits and you can just sort of carry them around. Um, a lot of people use just old um, old papers and cards and things for the paper. Um, so I inherited some stuff from my great aunt um, that included a bunch of the fabric shapes sort of made up, ready to be stitched together. And in the, the papers being cut from old birthday cards and Christmas cards and stuff like that. Um, so there have been some of these quilts um, that were found half finished and they still have the papers in. So these, these um, old papers and bits of newspapers sometimes, which is really cool from a domestic history point of view. Definitely, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um... So I feel like using newspaper will also allow you to date it quite well when you find it. Yes, 
definitely. So you would have these um, these amazing scrappy quilts that, that would be very thrifty, be made from like whatever fabrics they could find and it would still look amazing because quilting could do that. Um, or you would get sort of fancy ones where, you know, it was a, a hobby for the more well-to-do lady and um, who might go out and buy fabrics specifically to be making uh, patchwork quilts and would have the design in mind from the beginning. Um, and I do actually, oh, that's why, um, I forgot about this, but we recently found, and this was kind of the catalyst for the quilt episode as well, we recently found a patchwork quilt that my um, granny made me when I was a baby. And um, she passed away soon after I was born. So I never really knew her, but um, yeah, she made me this cock quilt and it's, it's all sort of hand quilted. And it's lovely. And I do have a picture of it on my phone, but I didn't transfer it. But I will put that up on the Twitter. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we also have a couple of others that she made. Uh, one of them is this massive double rabbit wedding ring quilt that is, again, hand quilted, which is amazing. Um, is double wedding ring like an established? Yes. So there are, especially in, in uh, North America, uh, there are a lot of named quilt patterns. So, um, yeah, you'll get things like uh, flying geese, double wedding ring, tumbling block. Um, they can have quite evocative names sometimes, yeah. Um, bear claws. <laughs> <laughs> and some of these are, are quite old patterns and some of them are newer as quiltings become... Um, such a big hobby um, but some of the older ones are the more sort of geometric ones um, like there's quite a lot of Victorian tumbling blocks patterns that's when you have um, like a four-sided shape and you can depending on how you place the light and dark fabrics you can get almost a 3D effect it's cool. yeah there's I mean I I'm not going to talk about that like in this episode, but you can get onto art quilting and all sorts. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, this this little cock quilt from my grandmother, um, it has pieces of, I, I showed it to my mum and she started pointing out the fabrics like, oh, I remember wearing that in the 70s. It was a maxi skirt, but then they went out of style or like, oh, I remember this was, you know, also one of my my mum's old clothes or something. Um, yeah, yeah, so I, that that was lovely um, as like a sort of physical record of history as well. So on the other end of the spectrum, away from the patchwork quilts, um, there are also whole cloth quilts and also sometimes known as North Country quilts. So these originate from the north of Britain and from Wales. Uh, let me just try and find a picture for you. So these, as you might expect, um, are quilts no made from just one piece of fabric. They're not patched. And the design comes in with the quilting. Okay. 
Uh, there we go. That will do. Okay, so it's a plain piece of fabric that's used on top. And that could be your old sheet or whatever. Or, you know, if you were lucky enough to get new fabric, you can use that. Because um, these were being made, you know, originally for, well, I guess as long as they've been been made, they have also been made for decorative purposes. Um, but in most homes, they would be also being made uh, for the purposes of, of warmth as well. Yeah. Um, and so while you've got all sorts of different types of design aspects, they're kind of all going to be, they're, they're all for a similar purpose. So here you've got a whole plain sheet of fabric. And that's been made up into the quilt sort of sandwich, as they call it. And then it's just been quilted into a pattern. So your quilting can be not only functional, like in a patchwork quilt, you might just quilt in lines across and it's enough to hold the fabric together and that's that. Um, but this is incredibly decorative. And... It would be, there would be like professional quilt designers, <laughs> like as far back as the 18th century. People would be wanting to make these, but they haven't really got the time or the inclination to design the whole thing. So they would go to a professional quilt drafter, which they would give their fabric, and the quilt drafter would draw the pattern on the fabric, and then the person would be able to take it home and just do all the quilting themselves at home. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. So I guess kind kind of like, you know, buying a printed kit today or something. Mm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, some of these would, would take a really long time. Um, but eventually you would get this absolutely beautiful piece. So that is whole cloth quilting. And... You, f you find quite a few of those from the Regency period as well, actually. It is very much that kind of aesthetic, I think, just the sort of plain white with the then sort of elaboration. Like yeah. I feel like you get a lot of stuff that is very plain stuff that has a lot of things done to it rather mm -hmm. than being more different colours and stuff in the actual construction. Yeah, I guess it fits in with the whole classical aesthetic. Yeah. Especially the one that you've you've posted with, with the sort of vine-looking bits in the corners. Yeah, it has these sort of inner, inner circles and then these kind of organic-looking designs. And a, lo a lot of them involve stuff like the twisting vines and the chains and, and things like that. So yeah, really, really intricate. They or they don't have to be so intricate, but um, they certainly can be. So another notable quilt now. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try not to run on too long, but I've just got a couple of notable quilts to finish with. The first one is the Changi quilt. So I found out about this quilt uh, when I was volunteering on a museum project um, when I was about seventeen. My mum signed me up for it. And then I was like, oh, hey, I actually really like museums. <laughs> um, so, and it was a, a sort of a 
it was a we were creating this exhibition about um make do and mend during world war Two, and i came across the story of this quilt so the background to this quilt is the japanese occupation of singapore in 1942 and during this time um all of the people who are living there from allied countries um, were sent to prison camps. And one of these was at Changi Prison uh, on the east end of the island of Singapore. And the women and children were separated into a, a different part to the men. And they weren't allowed to communicate except very occasionally. Um, and the women's side decided to make this quilt um so apparently in the camp there was like a little sort of girl guide group that was set up um to you know to sort of have the young girls have something to do and they were teaching them patchwork using you know old bits that they had bits of thread and, and fabric that they could find um and they decided to make this quilt as something that they could give to their loved ones on the men's side and they got so they they got permission to do this um from the guards because they were like oh yeah it's just, it's just a quilt what are they gonna do and they managed to get hold of these this material um they were using material cut from sacks of rice and each person was given a six-inch square and was asked to embroider their name and anything they wanted onto this square. And then the squares would all be joined together and made into a quilt that they had permission to send over to the men's side. So this quilt... Um, after the war was given to the Red Cross and they still have it in their museum in London. It was discovered in the 1960s uh, in a drawer and since that it has become quite famous. Um, so this quilt has essentially a lot of secret messages on it. Um, there are symbol national symbols um so there's one that has the welsh flag and daffodils um and some words in welsh so they found out that one way to send messages uh was by writing in um in welsh and uh irish and scottish gaelic so like obviously languages that the guards wouldn't recognize um, so there's a yeah, there's the da daffodil, thistle, the harp, <laughs> lots of different like national symbols. Um, one person has one woman has got away with uh, embroidering the letters G R <laughs> for King George, sure. which is quite impressive. Uh, <laughs> but there are flowers, so you know. Um. Yeah, there's a lot of national symbols. 
Um, there's a V for victory. Uh, there's the Swiss flag. Um, and yeah, there's just, uh, you know, each of these squares has a personality. There's the Rose of England. Um, <laughs> someone's uh, stitched in the words Changi Hotel. Naturally. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then there's also, because these uh, women were from several different places, not just Britain, um, there's other national symbols. So there were people from Denmark, Australia, New Zealand. Um, yeah, so they they managed to make all of these different squares with sort of coded messages in them and everyone embroidered their name on it. Um, and then that was that was sent over. And then nice. yeah, and then later on um it was discovered, as I say, and it's now uh, in the Red Cross Museum, which I'm not sure how to get to, but it would be really cool to visit that. Um, but so we did, we did in that exhibition that I was part of, we explored the idea of um, sort of conveying as much meaning as you could using a small square of fabric. Um, and that was quite interesting. Mm. Yeah. So... Going across the Atlantic, or well, I guess the Pacific, <laughs> being Singapore. Uh, I don't think any modern discussion of quilts would be complete without mentioning G's Bend, Alabama, which is a an artistic community that has got a lot of attention recently, but has been producing these incredible quilts for decades. Uh, so G's Bend is a rural black community in Alabama, um, and it's it's quite isolated. And there is this kind of re local tradition of making these incredible quilts, and they are. I'm going to send you the link to this whole website, which will also be on the Twitter. So you can see what I mean, because they are incredibly distinctive. Um, they're very modern art style. So this website that I'm going to link to um, has uh, pictures of many of the quilts along with the name of the maker. And there are also quite a few interviews and articles um, that you will find if you search for G's Ben quilts. These are these are really pretty. I know they they are amazing. So these are made again mostly by women, and they, according to one of the interviews that I saw, they were originally just a thrifty thing, like people were using, um, as people have done all over the world throughout history. Um, they were using whatever scraps they could find. Um, to make something that they could hang across their window or put on their bed, you know, useful items. <laughs> but, you know, because bread and roses, um, we don't just want useful items. We we want 
interesting colour as well. Um, so this sort of style of quilting developed, which is very, very modern, actually. Um, and I really would encourage uh, anybody listening to go and look up these quilts and have a good look through them because they're very striking and very interesting use of colour. Um, and in this interview, most of the women that made these didn't really consider themselves artists. Um, you know, they were just doing something that perhaps they enjoyed, it passed the time, it made something useful. Um, they were following a local tradition, but they didn't really consider themselves artists. Um, as many people who practice domestic quote-unquote crafts don't um until these were sort of and i hesitate to use the word discovered um but there there has brought been a lot of attention. sorry brought to public attention there we go yeah <laughs> um the these quilts have received a lot of attention um in more recent decades um due to um newspaper articles um according to the new york times they are some of the most miraculous works of modern art america has produced uh which is quite a description and they are now in the collections of art museums they've been exhibited um, the makers of the quilts are now able to sell their work um, and, and earn income through it. And I will actually link to that. I think it's an Etsy shop. Let me have a look. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I think it is. So I will link to that. Um, yeah, so they're now able to sell their work for a decent price. Um, because of all the publicity. Um, but yeah, the, the story of how these quilts developed um, is also really interesting. So um, yeah, do have have a look at the interviews if you like as well. In fact, there's a a note on this page describing how in the 1960s community members became active in the civil rights movement and because this community is on the river they would have to cross the river to go and vote so authorities local authorities reacted by counseling the, the ferry service um making it even more isolated and apparently it was during this period that a lot of the local women started a quilting bee um, so that was a workers' cooperative. So that's another not not a single notable quilt, but many notable quilts. Mm. And I'm going to leave it there for now because there is a lot more quilting that I could talk about. <laughs> um, but. 
those are a, just just a bit of an overview. Um, so there may be a quilting part two at some point. Um, but I'm going to leave it there for now have because we, otherwise, have we even touched on like the age quilting things. Oh, just just so many things. Yeah, that's that <laughs> one quilt I do know about. Okay. Oh, yes. No, I do. I do recall that now that you mention it. Um, so that will certainly be. Do you do you want to do quilts part two? Maybe. I mean, the the next episode is one that was requested a while ago, so we could also do quilts part two, like after that. I mean, the quilts part two can happen any time, but I'm just thinking at some point in the future, there's going to be quilts part two. <laughs> um, and and many more notable quilts will be talked about. So before we get into the local larder, you can. Contact us. Uh, like we, like Hazel said, we do have a Twitter bread and thread and also a Tumblr bread and thread with pictures, retweeting, reblogging stuff, uh, hints for future episodes, things like that. Uh, we are also on YouTube, Bread and Thread, where you can find um, video versions of pod the podcast. Um, and oh my gosh, where else are we? Email. Email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com please do email us any comments on the episodes ideas things that we missed out um anything you would like to see or if you just want to shout about domestic history we will shout with you uh, we're also on patreon where you can get access to a discord server where we also do a lot of shouting um about things <laughs> we've made things we've cooked general history stuff um, as well as monthly Patreon-exclusive recipes. And I think that's it. I think that is it. What? Well, let's go to the local larder. What are we talking about? Um, I thought that I would talk about Brown Windsor soup. Oh, that sounds appetising. Mmm, doesn't it, Jeff? <laughs> so what is it? Um, so it might be familiar to people who have read... Poirot, or um, seen the recent Around the World in 80 Days adaptation. Okay. So it pops up in both of those. Don't know if it pops up in the book. I have not read it. I have, um, but I can't remember any soup, particularly. I don't think I was paying attention to the soup. Well, it's like right at the beginning. Um, so it was a fairly common soup in sort of the early 1900s so in 1834 uh, the royal chef and future inventor of a1 steak sauce sorry what <laughs> you heard me um published a cookbook with a recipe for uh, soup a la Windsor, which was a white broth and noodle soup that apparently the king really liked. Um, we're talking George the Fourth here. When you say noodle, is this like pasta noodle or noodle noodle? Uh, vermicelli. Okay. 
and you get um, Supella Windsor showing up in various recipe books in sort of the first half of the 19th century. Uh, often things like uh, calves feet, oxtail, general sort of stock heavy soups. Mm-hmm. Apparently um, Queen Victoria liked soup a la Windsor a lot, but that was a white soup. Okay. I don't know how I feel about white soup. Well, it generally had um, cream and wine in it, apparently. Okay, that's that's not too bad. Um, but yeah, later on, we get um, brown Windsor. Oh! <laughs> which is often thought of as a Victorian thing, but we it was only really the white Windsor soup at that point. Okay. Um, but it shows up in menus in the 20s. And also, um, yeah, so it's kind of unclear how old the brown var- variety is. And what makes, what makes it brown? Um, it's just more of a gravy type thing. Okay. Rather than a consomme. But the, there's one theory that um, people started calling the more gravy type soups Brown Windsor soup as a kind of joke about a brand called Brown Windsor soap. Ah. <laughs> that does sound like something people would do. But yeah, apparently it's. It kind of becomes this cheap, easy to make thing in like cheap hotels. Um, during the Second World War, it's kind of a staple in what are called British restaurants, uh-huh. which were kind of community kitchens that would make big batches of stuff like this brown soup to feed people during rationing. Okay. Um, the writer P.D. James um, described it as tasting of gravy browning. <laughs> so kind of just gravy. Yeah. Gravy soup. Uh, it was one of the first Bachelor's products. Oh. This tinned Windsor soup. Okay. With the tagline, a meal in itself. Mmm. Is it, though? <laughs> Sounds delicious, doesn't it? I have to say, I'm not getting much of a flavour from this. Like, I'm, I'm imagining just the taste of gravy. Which, don't get me wrong, I like gravy, but a whole bowl of it? It's gravy with chunks. Mm. I don't think it does. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, one once rationing ended, it very quickly became like places serve this if they're cheap and trying to seem not cheap. 
Okay. <laughs> I guess having the name Windsor in it, like... Yeah, it's the it Royal sound... Association. But, I mean, it yeah. even shows up in um, Faulty Towers. Okay. As kind of a joke about how um, they want to be a posher hotel than they are. <laughs> kind of at the same time, we're trying to be posh by serving brown Windsor soup, but that is explicitly a cheap and gross dish. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, okay, I didn't realize it was still a thing then, because that was was that the eighties, um, seventies. Oh, okay. But yeah, it's it does continue to pop up occasionally. Um, it slightly anachronistically shows up in the unofficial um, Downton Abbey cookbook, right. And yeah, it just seems to have become, by the 50s, like I say, shorthand for really disgusting but nutritious food. <laughs> like, it's it's food of, um, this will keep you going, rather than actually wanting to enjoy your meal. Okay. But there have been some sort of attempts to modernise it. Although one of these attempts I found is basically putting a roast dinner in a blender. Um, okay. I mean, that'll get you some kind of soup. Yeah, but I feel like at that point you should just make a stew. Yeah, like, what roast dinners take long enough to roast. Why would you then blend it? <laughs> like, that, that's just making baby food. <laughs> puree of roast dinner so yeah that's that's brown windsor soup okay thanks for telling me about that so i can avoid it yeah don't have nightmares <laughs> i really hope this does not come back in style <laughs> food hipsters out there Please, hear me. Do not bring this back. <laughs> Heston, I'm looking at you. So yeah, th- thank you for listening. I hope that your taste buds haven't all rebelled at the concept <laughs> of Brown Windsor Soup. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. <laughs>